0: Laura Lippmann is the author of Dream Girl, and this is your 25th book?
1: You know, even I get confused. I think it is my 25th work of adult fiction. Okay. Maybe I, I count it up every time. There's a book of short stories, then I think there are 24 novels, but that includes a novella. I think that's right. Yes, that is right. So yes, 25th work of adult fiction.
0: We are huge fans of yours at Barnes & Noble. Last year, we chose Lady in the Lake as one of our mystery thriller picks of the month. And that is a fun book set in 66 in Baltimore. A little different from Dream Girl though, which is the new book, which is just publishing today. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. We're delighted to see you today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Jerry Anderson is stuck in a hospital bed in his very swank Baltimore apartment, very high above the harbor with great views. He's stuck at home with a nurse and his assistant. And this is where the book starts. Would you set the rest of the story up? We're trying to do this without any spoilers.
1: So yes, Jerry Anderson, who has a Extremely ambivalent relationship toward his hometown of Baltimore had finally returned because it seemed uncertain how long his mother was going to live Mm -hmm. with this rare and pretty fast moving form of dementia that she had. And she surprises him by dying within a month of the day that he closes on his new apartment. So he feels like he's stuck, has to stay a year so he doesn't take a huge bath on turning it around in the real estate market. And he has this terrible fall Mm -hmm. down a stairway in his new apartment. He suffers what's known as a bilateral quad tear and it is an injury for which you're absolutely bedbound for weeks. And soon after he's in this predicament, he starts getting phone calls from a woman who claims she inspired the titular character of his most successful book Dream Girl. And the thing is there is no such person. And he's always resisted telling anyone the story of where he got that idea. And now worse yet, There's no record of these phone calls. Mm -hmm. So like, am I losing my mind? I don't like that idea. Is it the medication? Or am I being stalked by someone who has a grudge against me, which Jerry, and this is very telling, insists to himself that he can't think of a single person who would have that kind of grudge against him. Mm -hmm. Lived on the planet more than 60 years and can't think of anyone who dislikes him enough to do something like this, which is our first indication that Jerry is not the most self aware person in the world.
0: He is a classic, unreliable narrator.
1: The story unfurls, though, quite like an Agatha Christie
0: locked room mystery. Did you start with the story or did you start with Jerry?
1: I started with Jerry in this situation. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in the concept of taking what's really a horror trope, Mm -hmm. isolation. And it's usually literal isolation. You're far out in the country. The telecommunications are down. There's no one that can help you. You're stranded. And it seemed to me that in the modern world, that people in big cities were more isolated than they realized. And that if you were stuck at home, even if all your telecommunications work, Even if there are people coming and going in your apartment, you're going to quickly find out just how small your world is. And for Jerry Mm -hmm. in particular, his mother has died. He's been divorced three times. He doesn't seem to have any close friends. There were Mm -hmm. close friends in college that Mm -hmm. neither one is available to him anymore for good reason. And he's not necessarily lonely, but he's definitely alone. And he's very vulnerable as a result of being alone.
0: He's also a bit of a snob too. I mean, he's a snob towards his assistant.
1: He's a snob towards
0: the nurse. I mean, he's a snob towards the woman at the desk in the building. Jerry is so insistent that he control his narrative, that he only believes facts that he knows to be true, which he's not as good with the details as he thinks he is, as we find out as each chapter unfurls. You jump back and forth between his history, his youth in Baltimore, and his young adulthood in college, and his current situation. Jerry unself-aware is possibly generous.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's got some big time. I saw this wonderful phrase that was coined by a television critic on Twitter the other day. She called it alabaster solipsism and Jerry Anderson has alabaster solipsism big time. It's very good. (laughs) Right. And He's aware enough to realize that the conversation is changing, mm-hmm. and that outwardly he would have to pay lip service to certain mm-hmm. ideas. We even have this moment where he taught a course in 2013 and he adds one woman, yep. one woman. It's like, I think it's all white men in Megan Abbott, who happens to be a yes. dear friend, but I would teach <laughs> one of her books in, yep. in college course, certainly. So he has that instinct to recognize, oh, the conversation's changing. I have to be careful. I have to be polite. But in his head, he just finds this all a pain. Mm-hmm. And this, is, this is something that I've noticed a lot in the world yeah. today, which is that there are people who... Say that they're listening or paying attention, Mm -hmm. but they only experience the conversations we have as an enormous burden to them. Why are you making me think about this? I don't want to think about this. You you have writers that have, for the course of careers that run 20, 30 years, written in a way where it's fair to ask, well, are you worried about the concept of appropriation? It's fair to ask me that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Lady in the Lake was sort of written as a meta-narrative on appropriation. So I like thinking about these things. I think these are interesting conversations. I think things are opening up in a great way. I don't feel disadvantaged when I stumble on an old phrase or word and have to take a moment and say, "You know what? I think I want to go check the origins of that." Because for all I know, I'm walking around thoughtlessly, unknowingly echoing something that is racist Mm -hmm. or misogynistic. I mean, I think one thing—it's a good example—if you recite the old. Childhood rhyme: Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Mm-hmm. Yep. Catch a tiger by the toe. It wasn't always tiger, and yep. you should know that. Yes. And you should. I mean, and if you don't know that, you should be okay with people pointing it out to you. And I know some people, and I think it's a function of age. I mean, it's it's important that Jerry and I are almost exactly the same age. Mm-hmm that he's white, that he's middle-class, although he he came from slightly struggling circumstances, which I think is part of the reason he has such a chip on his shoulder, which is I, I didn't have it easy. Things weren't good for me, but he just doesn't really want to be bothered. He's definitely someone who thinks he's a great man. And I'm not sure that he actually thinks he could ever be shortlisted for the Nobel, but I feel like, Every year around that time, he sort of wistfully stares at the phone and wonders if sweet phone call.
0: He's waiting for the MacArthur call too, isn't he?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. definitely, (laughs) He's waiting for all of the phone calls. Pulitzer, National Book Award, Penn Faulkner. You know, he thinks he should be in the running for everything.
0: One of the things I want to make clear for folks is this is a really fun book to read. It is wild, the things that your characters go through. And it's really so of the moment. You've got young women who are wrestling with exactly what is happening right now with Me Too and beyond. You've got Jerry, who is clearly not happy with evolution certainly even the evolution of language is a stumbling point for him but also he has issues with people not knowing exactly what they want to do with their lives like he's that uncle he's like what do you mean yeah. you don't have your life planned and it's like well i i i don't he's really of a time and of a place and he uses his own his primary measure is i'm not my dad that's right. measure for everything i'm not my dad and for a 60 year old guy he's really kind of Well, he's a little bit of a stick in the mud.
1: Yeah, he's, you know, that's and that's a pretty low bar. His dad was a bigamist who cheated on his mother and had two families. So just trying to be better than your dad isn't that impressive. I mean, Jerry definitely has big boomer energy. Mm -hmm. very much a generational book. And I feel grateful because it happens that I have a lot of really young friends. Sometimes, oh my gosh, sometimes they catch me one of the funniest things that happened to me in the past year, and I was probably still working on Dream Girl when it happened, is I found out, much to my surprise, that I had a pension from the Baltimore Sun, which I didn't think I had. I had a four hundred one k, and I get this letter last fall saying you've got this much money. It was like you know, like a nice sum of money, yeah. um, and they're like because, but it's small enough. That we'll give it to you now and let you put it in your own 401k if you just sign this piece of paper. And at the time I was like, well, I'm signing this piece of paper because I don't think the Tribune company is going to be around much longer. I'm so sad that I got that right. I'm actually, that's kind of tragic. I thought I was being comic about it. And so I'm in this DM with my young friends and I said, so it turns out I have a pension. And one of them is 29, is like, what's a pension? And the other one says, what's money? And they just reminded me that, you know, yeah. I'm this tail end boomer that took a pretty good ride on the back of the economy. Mm -hmm. I'm a very lucky generation where I had a job with health insurance and a pension, and I had that for 20 years. I left it of my own volition because all I wanted to do is be a full-time novelist. I was able to buy a house when I was 30 years old. That's also being in Baltimore. You know, these little things that you begin to take for granted and worse that you begin to think, oh... Young people today aren't disadvantaged. They just don't work hard enough. They're not really good. Oh. You really have to know what's going on out there. I'm lucky I have these young writers and friends who keep me in check. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry doesn't allow anyone to do that. You know, he doesn't right. respect anyone enough to actually listen to their points of view or to be open to these ideas about, well, maybe it's good to want to be happy. (laughs) Maybe it's interesting. I mean, he's always had a job that gave his life meaning. He spent Mm -hmm. his entire life teaching and writing and doing what he wanted to do. And it doesn't even occur to him how very lucky he is.
0: Victoria is his assistant. Aileen is his nurse. They're what, late 20s, early 30s? Late 20s. Late 20s. He can't really function without either of them. And yet he thinks of them more as they're they are not people to him.
1: No, I don't know who actually ever reaches the level of person with Jerry. I mean, one of the nicest things about him is that he genuinely loved his mother and wanted yeah. the best for her and did want to care for her. Other than that, you know, maybe his first wife, mm-hmm. the two friends that we find out about in college, but, you know, his subsequent marriages, girlfriends, he, you know, he mm-hmm. seems to have a robust and healthy sort of friendship with his literary agent. One of the few people in his life who, you know, dares to contradict him. But no, he doesn't really, he's pretty misanthropic. He's definitely got a touch of that. And he's not interested in people unless he's created them. Right. What I guess I would say he's only interested in the characters in his novels. Is that
0: partially because he can control them and control their futures, as it were? What happens?
1: Yes. And I think Jerry is one of those people who finds life incredibly messy and he doesn't like the mess. He likes the stories that he controls. One tiny insight that is afforded to him finally in the book
0: Mm -hmm. is
1: that even in trying to write a loving novel, one of his early novels is about his parents' relationship. It's said in the book that one of the only fights he's ever had with his mother as an adult is over that book because she doesn't see her relationship with his father the way he does. And, you know, she's, she loved him. She was crazy for him. And Jerry's insistence that it's a tragedy, that it's a terrible narrative, that it's a story that one can only experience as one in which one pities the woman in it. She's not having it. And he doesn't even know how to respond to that. The idea that other people control their stories.
0: Which brings me to the present day and the fact that you've written a novel. You went from Baltimore in 66 in Lady in the Lake. Now we're in the present day. And you're talking about a lot of what's happening in the zeitgeist. And wow, Jerry doesn't get it. But for you as a writer, I mean, that's a really fine balancing act to make sure that you don't suddenly tip into polemic. I mean, you're having fun. As, I mean, it's clear that you're having fun as you're writing this book. There's some wild things that happen. And it's perfect for the story and the characters. And, and wait until folks meet Margot as she comes swanning around. I mean, Margot,
1: she's hysterical. Margot may not think she's hysterical, but she was hysterical. It was a weird time to be writing a funny book. Right. And I've always felt that there was a slight disconnect, especially my series book has a character who is often funny and sarcastic. So I'm able to use that muscle in those books. But my standalone crime novels are not very funny. They tend to be dark and terrible things happen and they don't have neat endings where you can say everything's fine now because I actually really push against the idea of... Order being restored because we live in a universe where maybe we should question whether the order should be restored. And as I started working on Dream Girl, I realized that you know it's, it's a dangerous thing. But I was having fun, and I was aware for the first time I could really embrace the crazy. Mm-hmm. That this that having set up this situation was like, well, why not make this happen? why wouldn't this happen? Why wouldn't this happen next? And to just sort of look at these people and the situation that they were in, it, it made sense to just take it bigger and bigger and bigger and make it kind of, you know, loony. And I had enormous fun, but you know, the whole thing about, I mean, I, I'm so gratified that people find the book timely, and it seems to be speaking to the moment. It had to be set in 2019 mm-hmm. because the pandemic kind of called my bluff on it's clearly before the pandemic. So let's give it a year. Let's say when it is. And I happened to be working on a piece for a newspaper in the UK today, and I pulled up my own manuscript. Cancel culture is mentioned exactly one time. Woke is never used except as a way of saying someone has left a state of sleep. And there are two mentions of me too. So it's not heavy on the page. And I think, again, Jerry just sees these things as inconveniences, things that make him have to pretend to feel and believe differently than he does, but he hasn't been changed by it. And I I think maybe that's what feels timely is Me Too unfolded in late 2017. And we were, you know, a lot of us were so excited and we thought things are really going to change. They haven't maybe changed as much as we would hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I was a big fan of the morning show on Apple. I just loved it. And, you know, there's even a part there where there's this one of the characters who is guilty of these things, but wants to sort of make the make the distinction of there was like really felonious Me Too, mm-hmm. there was Harvey Weinstein Me Too. Mm-hmm. And then there's consensual relationships at work where maybe. Maybe someone took advantage of the power dynamic. And you know, Jerry is someone who definitely falls in that second camp. Mm-hmm. Jerry, there's like a tossed off line in the book about how he's had affairs with at least two of his assistants, but they really wanted it. Okay. You know, it's like he he felt that they took advantage of him. And it's like, you've got to be kidding. You know, I I yell at my own characters. Like, you've mm-hmm. got to. Kidding, how can you not see that you were the one who had the power? And I think a lot of us right now, we see the big moments and then we wait to see what's going to happen next. A lot of terrible men still have jobs. A lot of terrible men have received mild punishments and been reinstated. And I think that was all bubbling beneath the surface while I was writing in 2019. The, The glow was off. Yeah. The glow was off early 2018 when we really thought the reckoning had come for so many of these bad guys.
0: And what's really important to Jerry, too, is he really needs to be seen as a good guy. It's really important to him that he's the good guy, that when things go off the rails, I mean, he he has a situation at work where, you know, the powers that be come to him and they're like, dude, what did you do? And he sort of dismisses it and says, well, I'm the victim here. She threw herself at me. And then on top of it, he threatens to leave. And so they back off.
1: And this is, you know, taking place. It's it's so long ago that it's just absolutely credible that the male head of a department would be like, oh, you say it didn't happen that way. You say it was totally consensual. And now you're threatening to leave like, oh, wait, you know, never mind. It's he said, she said, you know, which was pretty true Mm -hmm. to my experiences in the workplace. I mean, I was, I was sexually harassed in a very kind of creepy, indirect, unintentional way at the Baltimore Sun. It was post Anita Hill and it was in the late nineties. And I remember when it was all over and- Nothing happened, by the way. Nothing happened. I mean, everybody got talked to and everyone was Mm -hmm. reminded we don't send messages like this on the computer at work. I remember sitting in the executive editor's office at the Baltimore Sun, and he was basically trying to convince me that the man who had written this really gross and offensive computer message about me, well, he was just a neurotic genius. He's, He's like, so he's harmless because he's a mess. He forgets to brush his teeth some days. He sees a therapist three times a week. and Like all of this is supposed to mitigate what has happened. And I just sort of, you know, and then at the time I, I nodded and, and said, I wasn't Asking for any more redress. I I was a really strong union member. And Mm -hmm. I remember talking to my union rep saying, No, I understand you have to represent the two men who are involved in this. That's Mm -hmm. how the union Mm -hmm. works. I'm totally cool with that. They have rights and there are procedures and there's a system and it has to be followed, even if I'm the person who's been hurt in this. But it was still just the craziest thing. And it's still going on. We're still being asked to sort of make allowances, but it's almost always for white men or say, but he's a genius.
0: There's so many women I know with stories. I mean, we were just complete barbarians in the 90s. And, and it's like you said, we're we're feeling like we're about to turn a corner and things are getting better. And then it's not quite that the wheels fall off, but the brakes get hit really hard. Right. And that's, you know, I'm rooting for all of these women who are younger, you know, and, and trying to shut open the doors and really push harder. And in ways that not everyone had the opportunity to push. And at the same time though, Jerry, there's a moment early in the book where you're just like, oh, well, this guy's losing his mind. He's on meds, his mother's died. Like grief is weird, grief is hard. And you wanna have empathy for him. And and you've written an essay called, My Life as a Villainist," And you talk about how when you became the villain in someone else's life, and this was your, your first husband, that gave you more empathy for the villains you create. And Jerry is a villain. He seems more on the meek side of villainy, but he is, let's be clear, he's, he's not the good guy. He, he thinks he's the good guy, but he is definitely not the good guy in this story. So how do you wrestle with creating this character and giving an authentic voice to this character? Because your dialogue is
1: fantastic. Thank you. Well, you know, that's my job. My job is that I have to have full empathy for every character in the book. Right. And if I don't, then I have failed. It's okay if readers don't feel the same way. In fact, I think Jerry is a very dangerous kind of person because he's so sure that he's good. I mean, being sure that you're good is a way to set yourself up for doing really terrible things to other people because you've already decided you're good. So therefore what you're doing is principled. It's the right thing and other people aren't good. So, you know, that's just the problem. I did have empathy for Jerry. That I mean, you could have empathy for someone without liking them. I think we sometimes forget that option just because we have empathy and we see the full person and we understand the things that have formed them. That doesn't mean I want to be his friend. I wouldn't want to be one of Jerry Anderson's Three wives, for sure. That sounds to me like a really bad deal. I wouldn't want to work for him. I mean, it's pretty obvious when I send my series character into the book that in some way she's a mouthpiece for me. Mm -hmm. Because of course, Tess is the closest thing I've ever written to an autobiographical character. And when he gets to the point where things are getting so crazy, that he's like, I think I'm going to need to hire a private eye. Oh, look, here's this striking woman who's been profiled in Baltimore magazine I shall summon her to my apartment and she just straight up and says I don't want to work for you because if you think that you have virtually no people in your life who would be willing to screw with you you're not honest enough with yourself for, to be a successful client I can't work with someone who's that unself aware because you can't help me and you know she she walks out and that's it It was a nice
0: moment, though, to see Tess come back. I was like, oh my, hello. (laughs) I wasn't expecting this.
1: This Oh, it's a really small town, Baltimore. I'm beginning to understand
0: that. Can we talk about literary references for a second? Because this is also, this is like Easter egg after Easter egg after Easter egg. There's everyone from Sharon Olds and John Irving and let's see, uh, Evelyn Wall makes a an appearance of uh, Francine Prose makes. An appearance. There is a lot of fun here. Rachel Cuss, Sheila Hetty.
1: Yeah, it's a, a lot of my reading list too. Um, a lot of books that I've read and loved. I mean, I, I, I like the fact, like to me, you talked about Yves Waugh, but he shows up, and because this is just absolutely torn from my reading childhood. The Man Who Loved Dickens, which ends up being a chapter in A Handful of Dust, was absolutely in one of those Alfred Hitchcock books. They had these anthologies of scary stories that, I don't know who really actually edited them, but they would put Alfred Hitchcock on the cover. So I liked, I loved making those references. You know, it it was so funny. My mother of all people, who's a librarian, read the book and said, I didn't realize that you were that bookish. Like, mom, (laughs) (laughs) how can you not know this about me? But books have formed me. I mean, I'm sure you're the same way. And I think a lot of writers are the same way. I mean, I always remember this detail from one of my favorite children's series, the Betsy Tacey books. Mm-hmm. And I especially love the high school books. And there's a character named Joe Willard who's an orphan, and everything he knows, he knows from books. He he tells Betsy when they're falling in love as seniors in high school that one day another boy loaned him a bicycle to do his newspaper route. And mm-hmm. when he brought the bicycle back, he offered to shake hands because from the books he had read, he thought that was the proper thing to do. Mm-hmm. And the other boy laughed at him. And I I felt that moment so much because so much of what I know, I know from reading novels.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, it's like how, how should a person be? I mean, I was trying to figure out the world through the books that I read. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm still doing that, frankly.
0: Who have you been reading lately?
1: I've been reading um, Madeline Miller, late to the game. I've already read Circe and I've gone back for Song of Achilles. And these books are so beautiful. They just kind of knock me out. I had the experience when I was reading Circe. Is it Circe or Circe? I don't know how to pronounce a lot of I things. I think it's Circe. Um Circe, like- yeah. I'm just... I should just confess, I learned to read with phonics. I grew up in Baltimore. I get things wrong so often when I'm pronouncing things out loud. So I just, I'll cop to that. But when I was reading that, I was writing passages in my journal. I was just crazy for her work. I have been rereading the biography of Elaine Stritch that came out. It came out a year or two ago, but I just, it's a really kind of like fun book to dip in and out of. And I just, I'm very, I'm very um, enamored of Elaine Stritch's terminology for someone who might have a crush on her. She's like, he has a sneaker for me, a sneaker for me. I'm really into that. At my daughter's request, I've been reading a YA book that she's crazy about called What If It's Us?, about two young men falling in love like, around college age. She's really, really into this book. And it's really, really important to her to read it. So that's what I was reading last night at bedtime.
0: Does Jerry know that he doesn't know how to tell the truth?
1: No, absolutely not. He he sees himself as a truthful person. I do know some people like this who convince themselves that it's not really lying if you mean well, or that it's not really lying If there's a good reason for it, Mm -hmm. there's someone in my life. I won't out the person, Mm -hmm. but they are perpetually not exactly truthful when they're on their way somewhere and they're checking in about like, you know, I'm almost like I'm at, and I, I, I have challenged this person and said, you just said to someone on the phone that we were 10 miles closer than we are. And the answer was, well, we should be. (laughs) we're still going to be late. I'm like, I get really confused by this. So I do know people who are like, but if you're telling a lie for someone's own good, you know, again, if you can convince yourself that you're not doing it for your own expediency or to get something that you want, but because you care about other people's feelings. And I think Jerry has fallen into that trap of thinking, I don't, but I think he's also gotten to the point where he doesn't even realize how untruthful he is.
0: That's absolutely the feeling I had. He has no idea that he's a liar. He has no No. idea that he's genuinely sort of backed himself into a corner because he just makes bad choice after bad choice after bad. And he can rationalize anything. I mean, he can rationalize everything. And it's wild to me. He also has a point too where he starts talking about if he were able-bodied, none of this would happen. But he's never really been a physical guy. And actually at one point, even says, Well, my second marriage was, you know, me being a character in a Jane Austen novel because I was just <laughs> doing it to make sure that I was taken care of. I mean, that might be the most honest thing that he says in the
1: entire book. When he's married to an investment banker. I mean, I think part of what was going on with giving someone this terrible injury and putting them in, in bed for the entire Present day section of the book is that I also wanted to kind of deal with my own ableism mm-hmm. and my terrible fear of what happens if I fall down. I'm 62 years old and I'm, you know, Knockwood. I'm in shockingly good health, but falling down is the game changer. You don't want to fall down after a certain age. I, I became a mom really late. So I'm an 11 year old. And sometimes we go ice skating or roller skating together. And I have to say, whatever happens, if you fall, you got to take the fall by yourself. I'm a really good ice skater. You cannot pull me to the ice with you because that could be catastrophic for me mm-hmm. even in great health it's like one bad break and one so i was i i was thinking a lot about that it was really on my mind i'm i'm self aware enough to realize that i have at times tended to be hubristic about my good health mm-hmm. and see it as something that i've earned but i know in my heart of hearts that basically i just you know one genetic bingo and it's right. like i'm just lucky i look at my mom at 90 i'm like thank you thank you thank you you know she's you know she's amazing and she's in really good shape and still living on her own and also very conscious that one fall wipes it all out so that was a big part of it i w- i wanted to show a character being forced to confront how much they had taken for granted just being able to get up and walk around every day
0: what's the one thing you really want readers to know about dream girl
1: I mean, if I only get to pick one thing, I want people to know that I think it's funny. It is.
0: Okay, let's keep coming back to this, please, because it's shockingly wild. I mean, it's madcap, this book. And and I realize we've been talking about a lot of very serious subjects, but I mean, I was laughing like a hyena while I was reading this. It was so much fun. And why can't we have fun when we're talking about terrible things? I mean, laughing at this stuff is what gives us space to breathe.
1: I mean, I like really dark comedy. I've always been drawn to it. So I'll tell a story on myself, which is Mm -hmm. sort of just shows how my humor lines up. When my stepson was graduating from college, and it was right around the same time that his sister was turning, I do the math, his sister would have just had her sixth birthday. He's graduating from Harvard. And we're in a little restaurant in Cambridge with his dad is me, his little sister, his mom, and my mother-in-law who Mm -hmm. at the time would have been about. She would have been about 90 at the time. She began to choke and it was really terrible and scary. For like one minute, it was the most terrifying thing ever. It was like, is this really going to be how graduation day ends? And there was like a doctor at the next table getting up. And I think finally someone kind of successfully heimliched her and she was fine. And there's sort of this moment and everyone's just trying to get back to normal. And I said, well, I guess someone just felt the grandkids were getting a little too much attention. <laughs> That's just me. I mean, I, I'm so mean. In some. I, I had a boss who was terrible to me. He was a really terrible boss. He was horrible to me. I dislike him so much. And then one day someone said to me, well, did you hear, I, you know, so-and-so has prostate cancer. And I shared this information with another former employee and he turned to me and he said, well, is it a, is it an aggressive cancer? And I said, you know, so-and-so is a passive aggressive cancer. <laughs> so this is me. I'm owning it, as they say. As I said earlier, the books I've written have not afforded much opportunity to use that part of my personality, mm-hmm. to use dark humor. But suddenly I found myself in this book and I was like, okay, good. I can let loose a little bit. And it was you know, especially the last four months I was working on this book, we were we were in the pandemic. Right. It had started and it was an escape, a respite, to go into this novel where the stakes were so relatively small compared to what was happening in the world, world at large and to just get crazier and crazier and crazier.
0: It's a really wonderful escape. I mean, yes, there's a little bit of commentary that's happening, but how do you separate fiction from the world it exists in? Like why would you do that? There's no point in separating the
1: two. Right. And and you know, and I was pleased to hear you say that you didn't find it polemical because everything's coming through the characters. Right. Characters are making these points. They're thinking about the world they live in mm-hmm. and making the observations that they make. And Jerry, whatever he is, he is smart. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, he's almost funny in spite of himself and his in his crotchety old man way. He's 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 so much older. I I can't believe we're the same age because he seems so old to me. So. Mm older than he should be. And and at one point, I found this today because I was looking in the manuscript to see where I use cancel culture. I was amused to note that Jerry doesn't really feel like he belongs with the boomer generation of writers. Mm
0: -hmm. You're like,
1: they're not substantial enough for him. He thinks he should be like up there with Roth and Updike that he really belongs to that. (laughs) He's like, no, I'm one of those guys.
0: Okay, Jerry. (laughs)
1: yeah okay
0: Jerry (laughs) (laughs) that's really okay Jerry you do have a moment with Twitter too in the book and Jerry discovers what Twitter is all about you're really fun on Twitter I have to say I do follow you can we talk about social media for a second and and where that fits in the writer's world it seems like you've got to be on social
1: I tell people to do what's authentic to them Twitter Mm -hmm. feels really authentic to me I have an Instagram account that's hardly ever touched I don't go to Instagram. I don't think in Instagram. I used to be super active on Facebook and I have some issues. You know, I'm not happy with Facebook. I also find it increasingly clunky and hard to use, but there there are a lot of readers on Facebook who don't use Twitter. So I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to migrate these Mm -hmm. Twitter posts over to Facebook because they're pretty similar. And Twitter for me is... Pure fun. It is like being in an office again, and you've been working for a while, and it's going across the street to buy a cup of coffee with two of my colleagues and trying to say something funny. It allows me to be very silly and very superficial. You know, it's nice to have that megaphone to promote book stuff when it's there, but to me, that's almost secondary. I just. Like to hang out on Twitter, and you know, you sort of think about. Obviously, I'm part of Book Twitter, and I love that, and I really do. Just you know, shamelessly ask for galleys and things that I see a new book is out. I have no compunction about that. Um, I also really like reading. I read a lot of writers on Twitter who are critics who write about movies and television, and I find those mm-hmm. conversations really interesting. And you know, I'm. I'm also really interested in threads where I feel like I learn a lot and I'm very interested in the concept of what people talk about as allyship, not only with race relations, there's some really amazing people to follow on Twitter when it comes to fat phobia. You know, there, there are people who have really carved out this interesting territory where I've loved seeing this pushback about let's stop talking about pandemic weight gain. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, let's stop making people feel bad because... They put on weight you know, try to understand that there's this industry that makes so much money if it can keep you coming back again and again to try this thing, diets, which fail again and again. So I like that part, but mainly I'm pretty silly on Twitter. I mean, I know today on Twitter, I literally put up a photograph of, you know, my pajamas drying on a line outside because I just thought my pajamas are really nice. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for you? Well, I actually have a book of short stories that I'll be out next year called Seasonal Work. And most of them have been published before, but they're not always easy to find because of the way crime stories get published. And there's one entirely new novella that's set during the early months of the pandemic, in which a young couple, happily married couple, decide they're going to watch one episode of Columbo every night. There are exactly 69 episodes of Columbo. They really did go up on the Peacock Network very early in the pandemic.
0: Okay.
1: And the episodes are used as just like little chapter breaks. It'll just be these very straightforward. The, and it's about what happens when they decide to test their happy marriage by going on a dating app under pseudonyms to see if they get matched. And it doesn't end well. Okay. <laughs> so so it has every you know it's like in in it's I adore Columbo as a matter of fact I I often tweet about Columbo yesterday I I said we really need to talk more about the fact that Columbo has some pervy stuff going on and I know he's the great guy and he's a lovely guy but it's just you look at the 1970s and it's like (laughs) uh,
0: uh,
1: Columbo and the pretty girls and now I'm working on a novel for the, the last Novels I wrote were all these really conscious tributes to books that were important to me. Dream Girl, it's not only misery, it's also very much Zuckerman Unbound and a sadly neglected, I think, out-of-print novel called A Novel Called Heritage by Margaret Decor Mitchell, which I loved. This time, there doesn't seem to be any book influence in it. It's a novel inspired by a podcast. I also listen to podcasts all the time. Um, I'm crazy about. You're wrong about.
0: It's amazing, fantastic. That show just came up actually in a in a show we were taping earlier. I love.
1: Everyone loves it. I've I've gotten to know Sarah Marshall a little bit, which when I mention that to people, they become very starstruck. Like you've talked to Sarah Marshall? Like yeah, a couple of times. I've talked to Sarah Marshall. They did an episode about incidents that involved young women, teenage girls, or college age girls. Giving birth at dances, if
0: you know oh, <laughs> it was just something I know. that's exactly. happened more than I once. Know. Yes.
1: I know. And the working title, I think, of their episode was called Prom Mom. And, and I began looking into that and I became fascinated by this one detail in one of these stories. And there are there are more than one. There are two in recent history, and there are just other stories about girls who have given birth, surprising people, including themselves. The couple, you know, went their separate ways. Um, whatever happened, happened. And then they became friends again via Facebook. And I just really started thinking about when something like this has happened to you as a young person, I do think there's some weird pull like the other person who is there with you would be of interest. So I'm kind of, Mm -hmm. I'm working on that. And it's very consciously set against the backdrop of 2020. But it's not about the pandemic. The pandemic is just what's happening. It's an interesting topic. It's kind of spicy. People are like, oh, readers don't want that. I don't know. I'm kind of fascinated by it. Like right now, I I like reality television Mm -hmm. and there's some reality television that's on that was being filmed when the pandemic hit and watching that. First of all, it feels historical right now. It's strange Mm -hmm. to me how March of 2020 feels so long ago. And I'm sure some people don't want to go back there, but I feel by 2022 or 2023, it will just be interesting to sort of remember how life was lived during that time. And to look up in my own photographs, I figured out when did I first start wearing a mask? You know, when did this shut down? When did that shut down? How did you shop for groceries? You know, everybody made all these choices that told us so much about themselves. I went through a lot of last year saying to people, so tell me about your COVID style, meaning what do you do and what do you not do? And there were some people I knew who were so strict, it was not to be believed. I mean, I was like, which... I found admirable, but I knew that wasn't me. Right. And there were some people who were so loose that I couldn't believe it. But there I am in the middle, and it was like, well, I'm really careful. I'm, we're living in this really closely contained pod, and we don't do this, and we don't do this. But I would get haircuts. That was like, I, and I had this great rationalization for why I was like, well, it's opened, and you know, those. To me, it is worth exploring. And I also think that there was something going on with people psychologically mm-hmm. when you're seeing 300,000 deaths, 400,000 deaths, 500,000 deaths, against that backdrop, it makes sense to me that this kind of double indemnity story would unfold, where all of a sudden it's like, why not kill someone? So many people are dying anyway, and no one seems to care. Well,
0: and also the story is so big, you're likely to not get caught. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite part of crime writing?
1: I think my favorite part is the fact that I do go in blind that I'm a pantser and that I just have to keep tinkering, 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 trying to make it credible. And, you know, I I don't really like killing people on the page. (laughs) Um, And sometimes, I mean, there's one chapter in dream girl and I'll just, you know, I won't spoil it, but I'll tell you when you'll recognize it, it takes place in a hotel room. Yep. That, was not a fun chapter to write. Yes, that was really disturbing, and I knew it had to be disturbing. Mm-hmm. M- my UK editor actually had me pull it back a little bit. He felt I went too far with it, and I thought I thought he gave me some good advice on some tiny details to take out where it was. He's was like, "That's just too much." And like, I hear you, and that's I just, a lot. That chapter is absolutely yeah. I, you know, I think my favorite thing is just really understanding my own characters. The book I'm working on, I, I was you know. I want to struggle. I swear to you, the day that I sit down at my laptop and I find myself saying, well, this is easy. I'm done. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen. That's when it's going to all be over for me because it should be hard to write every book. It should It should never get easier. And I was struggling with this book. I'm like, what's wrong? I kind of know the story. I've been working in this for months and I know where people need to go and what they need to go, do and what needs to happen, but something's wrong. And I, I'm constantly inventing writing techniques exercises so I said you know what I think I need to do I need to sit down and for these two main characters I'm gonna write what's known as the I want song in a Disney movie and I'm going to just like sit here and do very stream of consciousness. And one character was like, yeah, this is, I know all this. The second character is like, oh my God, I've had her completely backwards. I, I just have her wrong. It's like the things that are happening need to happen, but her motivations and what she wants are so different from what I thought. Now that I've confronted it, I am like, this is more compelling. This is more human. I, I actually have even more empathy for her now because mm-hmm. I really understand what she wants.
0: We've covered a lot of ground, (laughs) which has been awesome. Is there anything we missed? Gosh.
1: I mean, I'm kind of prepared to have some haters when it comes to this book. Uh Uh I just feel like, but I'm good with that. I don't think there's going to be a lot of, meh I think people are either gonna oh, like it or they're gonna hate it <laughs> and I'm cool with it I'm totally cool with that because it should be a polarizing book in some ways it's it's, it's either for people or it is not for people and I guess I'll be finding out soon how people-
0: <laughs> 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 Laura Lipman thank you so much the new novel is dream girl it is out today
1: thank you so much for having me this has been an utter delight Pour Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.